Miss the show, no problem. On the show and on this podcast, this pandemic is now going to the extremes. The health minister drops a little bomb revealing that provinces will likely roll out a vaccine mandate in the coming weeks, which would then force everyone in this country to get vaccinated. And of course, the comments got instant blowback, not just because of charter issues, but why now? That most countries opening up and deciding to live with this virus, while we, in a country that is mostly vaccinated, continue to shut down. So the question then becomes, can they do this? We'll speak with an expert on the charter who says, absolutely not. It is a very clear overreach. If you thought toilet paper shortages were a problem, a vaccine mandate that comes into effect on January 15th will mean up to 20,000 truck drivers in this country won't be able to cross the border to get us goods uh, that we need for our supply chains. And what does that mean for our supply chains, which are already a mess? Well, you can count on major shortages. We'll talk about whether or not this is actually going to happen. And January 8 marks the two-year anniversary of the Iranian bombing of Flight 752. The Prime Minister met with some of the families online for a private uh, ceremony or conversation. We'll speak with a man whose wife and child were murdered on that flight. He didn't join that conversation. Why? Well, because he doesn't believe Justin Trudeau will ever actually fight for justice. Let us get talking. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. She has told me I want to die. I feel like I'm in prison. I'm in isolation. My grandma's not actively dying. She wishes she was. She prays for it every day. Only in Canada do we treat our most vulnerable worse than a common criminal. Alex Pearson with you, oh boy, on this Friday, January 7th. And uh, like you, this week cannot end fast enough because it has been absolutely chaotic. Of course, if you're a parent, it's about homeschooling. But certainly it's been made worse, I think, by just all this nonsensical decision-making that has literally left me shaking my head because I feel pretty disgusted with what I'm seeing happen in this country these days. And I'm a, I've always been a proud Canadian, but the stuff that we're seeing unfold here is, is not the Canada I know. Because the Canada I knew wouldn't tolerate abandoning our most elderly, you know, to live out their final days. Locked down, completely alone, all because the politicians can't figure out a more humane way to keep them safe. I mean, the, the Canada I know today does that. I mean, it's bad enough that we let thousands of these elders uh, die in the first wave and then suffer alone for months, but we are now doing it again. And Corey, I'll get you to cue up that clip again. I want to play the clip again and have you hear what this woman is saying. She's basically saying her mother is willing herself to die because she doesn't want to be alone. She has told me I want to die. I feel like I'm in prison. I'm in isolation. My grandma's not actively dying. She wishes she was. She prays for it every day. It's gross. And yet there are countless stories that we're hearing about our seniors who are living like this. And yet three, four vaccines in, we still can't even give these people basic dignity. And so they're locked in their rooms, no visitors allowed, because, of course, those in charge can't figure out how to protect them without a steady dose of cruelty. So they're being treated worse than criminals. 
And we have normalized their suffering because those we elect did not do their job. And so they're alone with very little dignity or companionship. And then we've got our kids. We're allowing our kids to be robbed of their youth, robbed of education. We've got kids who can't go play soccer or hockey, can't go out, go have fun, can't go to grad. Again, it all comes back to the politicians can't get their act together. So I think it's time. Can we just admit that kids and old people are the sacrificial lambs? Because those in charge who had more than enough time have not bothered to fix an ailing hospital system that has been on life support, literally, for decades. They all ignored the very many lessons all spelled out for them in SARS. All of them. Because that is the main reason we are in this mess. It's not because we're not vaccinated enough. It's not because we're not doing our part. It's because we have to live like this to protect hospitals that those in charge can't run properly. It's not a funding problem. We certainly pay more than enough for health care. I think $191 billion budgeted next year. That should get us a little bit better than what we've got now, no? But it's that those in charge don't spend it in the right areas. And so now we have to destroy businesses, let our old people die alone, and then crush the kids to cover their rear ends. And then you get to the point where it actually kind of looks like maybe the conspiracy theories may prove true. And I listened to the press conference this morning, the weekly health update, which are normally something that'll put you to sleep. But I heard the health minister, my ears kind of perked up, Jean-Yves Duclos, as you've been uh, hearing in the news, he drops this nifty little nugget during this update saying, well, you know, he personally thinks that provinces will have to bring in these strict vaccine mandates which would force everybody in this country to get a shot or be punished. What we see now is that our healthcare system in Canada is fragile. Oh, yeah, now. Our people oh, yeah, now. are tired. Just now. And the only way that we know to go through COVID-19, this variant and any future variant is through vaccination. Mm -hmm. So Duclos clearly said in French, and he said it differently in English than he said it in French, which is generally the way it goes with this government. But he believes, personally, uh, that we will go down the road of what Italy and Greece are doing, which is forcing those over 50 to get vaccinated. And he was asked several times, because I think the reporters were a little bit surprised to hear this, but he does believe that the vaccine mandate is coming. Now, I don't care how pro-vaccine you are, and yes, for those who will email me, I'm vaccinated. So chill out. I'm not the problem. This is lunacy. No one in this country should be forced to put anything in their body ever, especially when no one in church can even tell us, like, how many vaccines do we have to get? Started with two. Now it's three. Now Toronto's moving into four shots. I, I, at this point, I would love if someone could ask one of these people, how many shots makes one fully vaccinated? Because I certainly can't be alone. I have no interest in taking three or four vaccine shots a year for the rest of my life. I don't even have interest in doing it for a few years. And that doesn't mean I'm not suggesting we don't do our part. But we have been. We have done our part. 90%, almost 90% of all Canadians in this country are fully vaccinated. Which tells us it's pretty clear that vaccines are not the way out of this thing. Even if every person in Canada gets vaccinated, it still doesn't change the fact that the virus will still be with us and our hospitals will still be so brittle and broken that even the slightest strain will bring us back 
to calamity. And Justin Trudeau has completely reversed his position on this because he told Canadians vaccine mandates were cruel and unfair. And he said this back on January 14th, 2020. But now he's going all in because blaming a very small minority for not getting a shot allows him to deflect from his government's failures. And as long as we blame this small portion of society, he doesn't have to explain, you know, why the fully vaccinated still don't have the freedoms we were promised. But his stance does not reflect the rest of the country because polling done by the Privy Council, which was put out in October of 2021, it clearly shows that even those vaccinated are overwhelmingly against these kinds of mandates. We overwhelmingly oppose punishing our fellow citizens who choose not to get a shot. And yet the Prime Minister continues to refer to these people as racist and misogynist. He says, must we tolerate those people? Well, yeah, we must. We have to tolerate you. But does this government actually believe that behaving China-like will change minds to win over the hesitant? It just will not. And no matter how frustrated people are with the few not getting a shot, the report clearly lays out that Canadians don't see forced vaccines as an answer. Because they're not. And none of the provinces have even brought this up as, as an option. And so we can lock down, we can quarantine, we can homeschool, we can lock up our old people all alone, we can test, we can destroy all these businesses. It will not stop COVID. COVID's not going away. But more importantly, none of these things, including these forced vaccine mandates, would fix what those in charge won't admit is the actual problem. And that is, if they failed to make sure our wonderful universal care that you know, we always hear is so, is so great, they can't actually get universal care for people when they need it. And that's on them. Because at all levels of government, they just didn't bother to make the right investments, which they were told to make right after SARS. Just ask Dr. Tam herself. She wrote about it in her pandemic preparedness report in 2006. And so their failures now have us losing a lot of freedoms and being threatened with more, all under the guise of a health crisis. Now, can it be done? What about our charter rights? Well, I think Mr. Duclos may need a crash course on charter rights because this would be a violation of something called Section 7. Life, liberty, and the security of a person. So we will talk about this. We will talk about why it's even being brought up. Because in other countries, like the United States, is now changing strategies and saying, fine, we're just going to have to live with this. We've done what we can done, but we've got to get on with life. And we are the most vaccinated country in the world. And we will never have the critical mass to make this go away. And I don't think with herd immunity, which we should have by now, is going to fix it. So we're going in the opposite direction as every other country in the world. But why? What we see now is that our healthcare system in Canada is fragile. Our people are tired. And the only way that we know to go through COVID-19, this variant and any future variant is through vaccination. Well, if the health minister has his way, the provinces will soon force everyone in this country to get a vaccine, but he doesn't have that control, which is a good thing. And the provinces haven't even asked for this. And what maybe the health minister doesn't seem to understand is that this can't likely even be done. And that's because Daddy Trudeau created something called the Charter Rights. And that charter doesn't allow for the government to take control of our lives, 
our liberty and our security. I think they forget that. I want to bring in Joanna Barron, who's the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And Joanna, as soon as the comments came out of his mouth, and I'm not sure if he freewheeled this, I don't know if he meant to say it, it erupted. And that's because it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, The notion of a vaccination, which is, you know, having an injection into your body, that is a matter of personal liberty. It is the strongest protection of personal liberty. And whatever you think about the choice to be vaccinated, I strongly support it. But it must remain a choice, right? It cannot be a matter of government coercion. And at the CCF, we've been very clear throughout this pandemic Um, When universities or private companies or even the federal government in its capacity as an employer. So, for example, Mm. people asked us when parliamentary employees were mandated vaccination, if we thought it was unconstitutional. And the answer is no, because that's a matter of employer employee law. And so private entities can do this because you can go and get a job somewhere else. You don't have a right to work for the Parliament of Canada or anywhere else. But you do have a right to live and enjoy your bodily integrity as a Canadian citizen. So this is quite different. Yeah, I mean, last I checked, we don't live in China. And I don't ever want to live under the uh, authoritarian rule of another country. And this has to go beyond what we think of those who don't get vaccinated. Because while there are some real loons out there, there are people who who have a real hesitancy about this and and that's fair um and i might disagree with them but they have the right and i don't think we should ever be taking someone's right away from putting a chemical or anything into their body that's just not some that a road we want to go go down because it's one thing to compel people and say look this is what you should do and gain their trust it's totally different to force someone and what's happened with this issue as you well know is it's become very political it's been very weaponized and i think lost in all of that is at the end of the day, most Canadians are fully vaccinated and we're going after a very small group that even if they were vaccinated, it wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I think that that's clear. And we've seen the Prime Minister this week making very callous remarks, um, offensive remarks actually against the unvaccinated. And it's clear that there's an impulse now to find a scapegoat. Um, but it's just the facts don't bear it out, right? Half fully half the people in hospitals now with covid Um, are fully vaccinated, like we have to start thinking um, a little bit more outside the box. There are excellent antivirals, there's great treatments. But I agree that once you go down that road of mandating that free citizens receive an injection against their will, you've entered very dangerous territory. Um, So people need to think more broadly than just this pandemic, which will eventually end. But these types of things will be with us permanently. Well, yeah, and that is, you know, and the one thing that I think is dangerous about this is that by politicizing this and hardening this and turning it into a wedge issue and and talking about forcing people, we're just feeding into that um, conspiracy theory where a lot of people who are hesitant, it's because they don't trust the government because they felt always felt that the government was trying to force this. And, And by even bringing up this kind of language, it just feeds right in like, I told you so, this is what they want to do. And so they just become further entrenched. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the remaining whatever it is, 20%, 30% of all Canadians who haven't been vaccinated, they're just going to be further alienated. Almost, you know, almost all of them by comments like this. Um, almost certainly. So where, what, what is 
than the right. I mean, because a lot of people will now debate, does this go against charter rights? Does it not? And so I know that Jason Kenney has already come out and said, no, this is not a road we're going down. And Doug Ford has said in the past, this is not something he would ever do. But given, you know, we have seen so many civil liberties kind of go up in smoke during this pandemic, what is the right here of people? So the right is Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person. And um, it, the Supreme Court has been very clear in past case law, for example, uh, a woman's right to choose an abortion, um, the right to choose medical procedures. And that is sort of like the strongest core of the Section 7 right, because, of course, life, liberty and security, the person encompasses a lot. But anything touching your bodily integrity, the Supreme Court has said, for example, in Morgenthaler, which was the abortion rights case, like that is the most difficult for the government to justify intruding with that right. And in fact, it's a fact in Canada that anytime a court has found a violation of Section 7, it has not been saved under Section 1. Um, it's just if, if it's a violation of life, liberty and security of the person, we're not going to say that it can be justified in a free and democratic society. Um, and so really, we're going into uncharted territory here because either... So, of course, it would be challenged right away if any province decided to bring a mandate like this. And so either the the court would have to find a way to say it's not actually a Section 7 violation for some reason. You know, I've seen some weird gymnastics around this, for example, in the CCF's healthcare case, not actually a Section 7 violation. Um, or they would have to take the unprecedented step of saying it is a violation, but due right. to whatever the crisis um, which well, is have, they, they would have to have a health uh, emergencies act um, and, and yeah. try to get it under that. But this is a hill many will die on. I mean, we've got polling from the Privy Council uh, that was done back in October, which shows overwhelmingly even vaccinated Canadians, while the unvaccinated may irritate people overwhelmingly, like 85 percent say, no, we do not want people um, destroyed if they don't get it. And we also don't want people being forced to get it. So there's no actual support for this. Yeah, that's right. I think it's just governments wanting to show that they're doing something right because, you know, because because the the news headlines about COVID right now look, you know, terrifying to many people. Yeah, well, you know, every other country is opening up and uh, the freest country on the planet seems to be shutting down and going the opposite way. So it is uh, particularly uh, galling, I think, on a Friday when we hear this. Nonetheless, Joanna, we will keep watching this and see where the uh, the next melee of this comes from. Appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Alex. That is Joanna Barron, who is with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And so, okay, great talking point uh, for the government. They might think they're you know, scoring cheap political points off of it, but it can't be done, and it should not be sold as something that we can do in this country or even want to do in this country. That's not the kind of country we want. You think you got problems now? Oh, we have not seen anything yet. This isn't getting a lot of coverage, and it really needs to, because on January 15th, truck drivers in this country are going to have to have proof of vaccine in order to go in and out and over the borders. And some will say, well, big deal. Well, we've already got a shortage of drivers in this country by about 20,000. In the United States, they're short about 80,000 drivers. And this vaccine mandate in Canada alone is expected to sideline as many as 20,000 drivers. You know we already have supply chain issues. We talk about them all the time on this show. And losing these drivers is going to leave us you know, far, far shorter than just the worry about toilet paper. And so far, the Trudeau government, which has recklessly politicized this issue, doesn't seem to have any plan to address this. 
or give any clarity to the industry on if it's going to push this through uh, or, or what the plan is should this actually happen. I want to bring Stephen Laskowski into the conversation. He's president of Canadian Truckers Association and Ontario Trucking Alliance. He joins us now. Good to have you, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. It's almost like you guys have been whistling into the wind because certainly we've talked about it on the show. I know my colleague Roy Green has been talking about it, uh, but it's not getting a lot of widespread coverage. But the implications, should the Trudeau government insist on this mandate, uh, we could. how long would it take for supply issues to start choking up? Well, uh, you know, just in terms of the process, you know, both the Canadian Trucking Alliance and many of our customer associations, so the manufacturers, the Canadian Chambers, Chamber of Commerce, pardon me, and, and many others are involved in this issue in terms of educating the federal government as to the impact of, of, of this mandate. Uh, with regards to how quickly it will impact, it will depend upon the sector being serviced. So uh, as we remove anywhere between 10 and 15% of the drivers, depending upon where you are. And I want to make it clear to your listeners, the, um, the trucking industry is, uh, in terms of its vaccination rates and its approach to COVID, have always listened to health and safety measures. We follow them all. And that's why we have one of the lowest uh, penetrations of COVID amongst our drivers, along with the fact that they're isolationist uh, by nature, by the nature of the work. Uh, but with regards to uh, what we're saying to governments, is that as which we remove 10 to 15 percent, and they were reflective of society, which is in the mid 80s, 12 and over, I think, and depending upon your province, you're going to see a significant uh, exit of, of drivers in certain parts of the economy. And so what's happening out there is customers of our trucking companies are reacting over the last four to six weeks and trying and being very aggressive in the marketplace to secure truck transportation. And as you mentioned, and provided those numbers. If there is not enough capacity already, and we reduce these numbers by 12 to 20,000 people, depending where, it, depending where it falls, what we're going to end up having is pockets throughout the economy that will be significantly impacted by this decision. And have you heard anything from the Trudeau government, uh, transportation minister, on, on what the, the status is? Because certainly they must know about it. I'm pretty stunned as we draw so close to the deadline that no one in the media is even asking during these updates. But has any communication been made? So there's been a lot of communication. I'll say this, that uh, the government of Canada and, and all the provinces have worked throughout this crisis with CTA and our provincial associations to deal with numerous issues, including this one. We've had a lot of dialogue. Uh, but to date, we've had we've heard no decision, and uh, we've heard no indication that uh, a change in policy is forthcoming. But you know, I mean, this is an issue that has become very, very politicized. Um, just today, uh, you know, the health minister at the federal level is now talking about having um, provincial vaccine mandates, which would force everybody in this country uh, to have a shot. Um, whether or not that happens, I don't know. But it is a very political issue. Um, but it does have very, very real consequences, as we are seeing right across this country, as labor shortages are being felt. Every, pretty much, there's not a business out there not being affected by labor shortages right now. Absolutely. And so, you know, uh, from a CTA perspective, we're, we're data-driven, fact-driven. We've been providing uh, over the last two months how our industry will react to handling these driver shortage if the cross-border mandate comes into place, how our customers will react. Uh, what commodities and sectors of the economy appear to be more at risk. We provide that information. 
and uh, encourage the government to make a decision based on that information. And so when do you expect that we will see some movement or is this going to be down to the wire? Because, I mean, one of the other things we need is certainty. There has to be some certainty because we uh, keep we keep making decisions and being so reactive and getting to the brink of teetering off. And it's just we kind of have this constant chaos. So when do we get some clarity on this particular issue? That, that question really resides with the government of Canada. We continue to provide them information. We provide provide them questions about how this would be enforced, if indeed it would be enforced. And uh, we're waiting for that decision and that clarity. And um, one of the things that I will get email, why do truck drivers not get vaccinated? And look, I'm vaccinated. Um, Most Canadians are vaccinated, but I just happen to believe that it's your choice. If you don't do it, that is your choice. But people will say, well, why don't they just get vaccinated? So why is there such a hesitancy? But there, but there's uh, my answer to that would be they aren't hesitant for the vast majority. The vast majority are vaccinated. You know, it's a, a, a vast majority of companies are well over 85 to 90 percent. But there are, are companies, depending where they operate and where they source drivers and who have worked very hard with dealing with vaccine hesitancy, uh, face more vaccine hesitancy than others. And it's just reflective of society. It's not a trucking issue. I mean, we've seen we've seen these similar situations arise in other sectors of the economy. And so um, it is not a trucking issue. And in fact, you know, we just recently did a survey of our board to understand uh, how Omicron is is impacting our our drivers, our long haul drivers. And like like it has in the past, the variant has had little impact in terms of spreading through the driver community. Yeah. Why? Uh, there are a whole bunch of reasons, including that the vast majority are, are vaccinated, but there's also an isolation job. So it's not a trucking issue. It's a societal issue. Well, it's a hospital issue. It's a political issue. Well, I mean, because you, you, if, if the know, drivers were the problem of spread, they, they would all be off the road in the, in the first waves. This is a complex policy issue. We, we do appreciate that. Well, we do, but we also have to be honest. I mean, if truck drivers were the problem, we would have seen waves of, you know, spread uh, in the beginning of this thing when they were continuing to drive uh, right in when we don't didn't know anything about the pandemic. Bottom line is they were essential service then. Uh, they're still an essential service. Do you know if this, um, Stephen, will have any spinoff effect as far as risking loss of business in the future? Are you hearing from other countries that will say, you know what, I, we, if this vaccine mandate is going to be gumming up uh, transportation, we're just going to have to move our business somewhere else? So, you know, the, the, the issue of sourcing and supply chain disruption will be that choice of our customers. But obviously, right. they will have choices to make if they can't secure north-south uh, trucking capacity in, in the immediate term and in the long term. It will become an issue of consideration. Yeah, it will. Well, we'll have to watch closely to see, um, you know, this kind of little game of Russian roulette and where this takes us. But no question about it. If people aren't paying attention now, they certainly will be when they start to see shelves empty in their favorite grocery store. Stephen, very much appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for the opportunity and the time. That is Stephen Laskowski, who is uh, the president of the Canadian Truck Driving uh, Truckers Association. So we will keep an eye on that. This is also a difficult time of year. As we remember the victims of Flight PS752 and other air disasters, families who continue to grieve, who celebrated yet another holiday season with empty spaces around the table, know that we stand with you, know that we continue to fight for you, 
know that we will continue to be there to support you as you grieve, as you face the long, slow process of healing. So Saturday, January 8th, that's tomorrow, and it marks the two-year anniversary of the downing of Flight 752, which was bombed out of the sky, killing all 176 on board. These people were murdered by a terror regime that to date has gotten away with it. And to date, other than words, the Trudeau government has not really done anything. And he continues to call this terror attack an aviation disaster. And I wonder, you know, if only he could talk as tough with Iran as he does the unvaccinated. Because he just can't seem to bring himself to take a straight and clear position on this. And Iran today saying that it'll, you know, it's prepared to hold bilateral talks with concerned countries, but it is ignoring all calls for reparations. And if you didn't hear on Monday, there were several families of the victims who actually won a very historic case, a civil case in this country by an Ontario court which uh, ruled in their favor in a $107 million civil suit against the regime. But for these families, this is not about money. They don't, they don't expect to get any money. What they want is accountability. What they want is justice. What they want is for Justin Trudeau and his government to fulfill the promises he made to them in those awful hours after this happened that have yet to, you know, come true. Shaheen Mogadam joins me now. Uh, Shaheen, it is so nice to have you. Uh, of course, for our listeners who don't know, Shakiba, his wife, and his 10-year-old son, Rostin, uh, were aboard that flight that night. And so, Shaheen, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Alex, and uh, thank you you have me here uh, tonight and uh, uh, to explain about what the situation about the PS752, the, the whole case. It, it is probably not what you expected your life to turn into, but you are now fighting for justice. You're advocating for your loved ones. You're advocating for your little boy, your wife, but all the other people that were killed on that plane. You were part of the civil action uh, that was awarded on Monday. Um, you and many others really are fighting for justice. Uh, do you feel like you're on your own doing this? Uh, no, we've been three, uh, me, Mirza Zari, and Ali Gorji, who, who uh, actually submit this claim uh, by advocate Mark Arnold. He's one of the very good man, a very intelligent, good lawyer, and very, you know, very kind, humble, and he's so good. Anyway, uh, we, we, our claim register uh, submitted on, I think, about 45 days or 50 days after the shutdown. But uh, for us, we have lots of issue and problem with the, with the government. They, it took about eight months to deliver the court order to Islamic uh, uh, government. It's eight months. So it didn't let us to start the case. But after that, the case started, and then with lots of problems and lots of pressure we have with, from the government legal teams. Uh, but at the end, we received an amazing judgment by uh, Mr. Bilobaba. And uh, mm -hmm. he, he determined that the shutdown was intentional, and it wasn't a terrorism act. And he convicted the Supreme Leader and those commanders who are as responsible of that terrorist act. 
You know, it's it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's been two years tomorrow, and I, I will never forget that, that day, and certainly the days following. I know you don't. Um, and then we went right into this pandemic, which uh, has just been an absolute nightmare, uh, certainly for those who are, are filled with grief and, and dealing with this. But, you know, Shaheen, what is it like for you when you reflect at this time two years later? Um, you know, I don't think it probably gets any easier. No, you know, the the problem is, after all those efforts that we, we, we did, still the government has no answer for us. Just today, uh, there was a meeting with uh, Mr. President, Mr. Prime Minister, but he has no answer. Uh, we didn't see, we can't, there is no accountability, no transparency, uh, no concrete action since day first. You know, no one knows still uh, about the black box of the the plane, uh, what, what is undergoing on the negotiation. And the Iran easily said, I am not responsible to answer you. It just, they said. I don't know what are they are looking for. In yesterday's statement that's released by Canadian government, still they, they mentioned that Iran is not, you know, coming for a negotiation for the compensation. This is the matter that they are looking for. And this is not we are look after. We want the truth. We want the transparency. And we, we deserve to know what happened that night and why happened. This is what we are looking for. Yeah, you cannot find what they call, you know, the healing or, or closure until you actually get justice and find out those answers. Otherwise, you just, your whole life is spent trying to figure out what happened, who's responsible, who's going to take account. And for, for our listeners who don't know, Shaheen, you know, the prime minister uh, went into your home in the hours after this. There are pictures of you standing with the prime minister, his arms around you. You welcomed him into your home. Your son, uh, Rostin, uh, loved the prime minister, admired him. I mean, I think you called him his hero at one point. Um, he made a lot of promises to you on that night, and yet you did not take part uh, with the online um, meeting with him today. Why is that? Uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, the prime minister, at the day first, he said, uh, I'm, I'm going to stand to the bottom line. But still, we didn't see that, uh, that promises. And he said that uh, exactly it was his word, that he said that intelligence assured us that something terrible happened and that Iran shoot down two missiles and uh, kill all those 176 passengers. But after five months, six months, he, they all the government of Canada does just change everything. And they said, we don't have any resources, any information that shows that such terrible things happen. That's simple. They just switch everything. And at the last stage, just three months ago, which I published the inter, uh, with our meeting uh, with the legal team of Canada, uh, of uh, Global Affairs of Canada, uh, they easily mentioned us, and they reject even the Supreme Court rules that they said we don't the, we don't believe that the missile fire shoot down shoot two missile was intentional, and it happened by mistake. And this is what the legal team of Canada said. And in the another official letter, they mentioned five facts that they ask Iran, and they're looking for these only five. Uh, request from Iran as reparation, that they call it. And I can't just tell you that what they ask Iran and they, what they want from Iran. Uh, they said the first Iran has to come and 
do, uh, internationally apologize for what they did. And then they, the second thing is uh, return back all those belongings uh, who they looted from the passengers right. who died. And the third, they said they have to uh, guarantee that the, the sky of Iran is safe. And then they said they have to introduce those who are responsible for what happened. And at the end, they mentioned that Iran has to pay the agreed compensation amount. This is what they are looking for. There is no any the punishment. There is no any you know pressure. There is no any. We are not seeing any justice on it. Yeah. And so when you hear the prime minister, you know, refer to it as a, quote, aviation disaster, um, and they want to actually dedicate January 8th as air disaster day, uh, that, that, that is, do you see that as a slap in the face? No, you know, Alex, this is what I, uh, you know, directly rejected that one, because we expected that this uh, January 8th, the day, must be dedicated to uh, Ukrainian flag, PS752, or any other word related to it. Uh, I know the Air India happened, the Ethiopian Air happened, but they can have their own day. It shouldn't be mixed. There is 356 days in the calendar. Most of them is empty. I don't know why they are just reject to, to keep the name alive. I personally mm-hmm. uh, had a discussion with the a school which Rostin attended to it. And on that school, there was two children who died on the mm-hmm. crash. So even the board reject to, refused to let us to uh, do anything like a memorial on the, uh, into the school. They rejected. Right. I personally talked to mayors and I asked them to uh, give us the land anywhere, just far away in the center, somewhere in, in Toronto area, even further out. And we built some some kind of monument for us by ourselves, but they said easily we don't have any property. It's it's kidding, it's joking. It is it, it, a one of the most biggest vast city in the world. They don't yeah. have a two thousand square feet uh, property any land to give us. Well, or, or even a wall for a plaque. But but to your point about this AVI Asian disaster uh, day, uh, what happened to Ethiopia airs versus what happened to the flight your family was on and, and, and the Air India bombing, the Air India bombing and flight 752, they were brought down by terror. Um, the, it wasn't a disaster. It was terror. Um, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, Alex, if you go back and just read the, what happened to the Air India, the government rejected them as a Canadian yeah. for 10 years. It took 10 years that the Canada accepted that, that they are Canadian. And they, they were Canadian, but they said, no, because yeah. you fly to India, I can, we cannot accept you as Canadian. And it took 10 years. Yeah, the, the Air India bombing uh, families have been uh, treated dreadfully by this country. Uh, they've been forgotten. They've never been able to get justice, and they've pretty much been left on their own, much like, I think, uh, how a lot of you are feeling. You know, tomorrow um, you will stop. I'm sure you will pause. But how do you reflect? How do you want, you know, Shakiba and Rostin uh, remembered? You know, I I expected that at least. I I, I think that they they deserve as a Canadian for the future to people know and remember them, and they they need some deserve 
a memorial and some kind of uh, monument, some statue or something for them. Uh, I, I told you just a minute ago, even the school refused to do it. I just put like a biography of those two kids. Well, Shaheen, uh, we certainly reflect with you. I know my listeners reflect with you. I'll continue speaking with you. And I, I can tell you uh, categorically, you are absolutely not alone. I always very much appreciate you joining us. And I always appreciate uh, you talking with me. So thank you very much. And, um, and we'll, keep, uh, we'll keep this uh, in the headlines. Thank you so much, Alex. And I'm so appreciate. No, I appreciate you. That is uh, Shaheen uh, Mogadam uh, joining me now. He's always very, very generous with his time, but uh, his life is now fighting for a justice uh, that he never thought he'd have to get. And, uh, and he deserves that. They all deserve that. But again, words matter. This was not an aviation disaster. It was a crime. It was a terror attack. And changing that language is only helping a terror regime. And I'm not sure why we keep pandering to this, but nonetheless, this is the choice the Prime Minister's made. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.